0: Welcome to Footsteps of the Fallen, a Great War podcast with me, battlefield researcher, historian and writer, Matt Dixon. For over 30 years, I've been visiting the cemeteries, memorials and battlefields of the First World War. And in this series of podcasts, I'd like to take you on a journey through France, Belgium and further afield and tell you the stories of some of the places I visited and the stories of the men who lie as the dead of the Great so pack up your kit bag, pour yourself a cuppa and join me as we walk the well-trodden paths on the battlefields, following in the footsteps of the fallen. It's a pleasure to have your company. So welcome to this latest journey through the footsteps of the fallen and as always it is an absolute pleasure to have your company and thank you for joining us and if this is the first time that you've listened to the podcast, welcome, thank you very much indeed, it's a pleasure to have your company and for those of you who are old sweats and are coming back to listen to another episode, thank you very much indeed for your continued support and uh, thank you to everyone who has been kind enough to have downloaded our recent episode uh, of our interview with military historian Paul Reed. It was a really fascinating conversation with Paul and I really enjoyed the chat and I think we could probably have gone on talking till about midnight if we'd have been able to but uh, it was a pleasure to see Paul on uh, our TV screens this week and uh, who do you think you are and um, I'm hoping that there is going to be some opportunities for Paul and I to collaborate together again in the future and it's uh, something that I'm sure we will keep you posted about in our respective podcasts. So it's been a very exciting couple of weeks. Um, I finally, after two years of waiting, managed to make it back to the battlefields of the Western Front. I had a two-day trip over to France with my good friend Simon, and it was, uh, I say, lovely to be back visiting the cemeteries and be back on the ground as it were. And um, we're going to do a couple of podcasts based on what we got up to, but uh, it was a really enjoyable trip. Spent the first morning of our trip walking the battlefield of Neuve Chapelle from March 1915. It's something I found really interesting. Neuve Chapelle is a, a battle that um, I, I find very interesting indeed, and it's something I've read a lot about, but it was particularly uh, different to sort of actually take it in from the ground, and uh, you get a much better understanding of the battlefield by walking it. It was something of a, a, a day of extremes, really. We had a kind of a whole year's worth of weather in one day, but uh, it didn't in any way spoil what uh was a very enjoyable walk and uh, really interesting as i say to see the landscape particularly from a german perspective of the uh defensive positions that they had facing the british and uh, as an interesting trip to the uh indian memorial at the port arthur crossroads and then headed down the Rue du Bois towards Festubert, where we visited the infamous Cinder Track and walked the battlefield that was a site of uh, three separate battles, two in 1915 and one in 1916, the site of the Boar's Head Salient. And uh, once again, it was a really interesting experience to see the battlefield from the eyes of both the British and the German perspective, uh, the absolutely pancake flat landscape with uh, no cover at all and uh, makes the uh, concept of attacking with infantry completely insane and uh, we had a lovely stay at uh, La at the place that we uh, normally stay at it was uh, great to see our friends there again and then an early start on the following day to drive down to the Somme and uh, we took a bit of a circuitous route rather decided to avoid the motorway and went cross-country around the east side of the city of Arras and um, it was particularly interesting came across a a couple of cemeteries that I haven't been to before a Queen Cemetery and a Bukwoi Road Cemetery and uh, it's a part of the battlefield that um, I don't know particularly well I mean I've been there but it's been a while and uh, certainly there is lots of scope for more exploring and uh, certainly a you know vast tracks of uh, fighting and battlefields for exploring. It's also it uh, very exciting to discover a new place to go and visit. And uh, we had a really good day down on the Somme, went and paid our respects to some of the war dead and the men from my old school who lie in the cemeteries around the Somme, and then had a very enjoyable walk from up near Freikorps across to Mametz and down the valley towards Mamets Wood with the Welsh Memorial before ending up at Flatiron Cops Cemetery and then went in the afternoon down to uh, Longeval and uh, Highwood uh, London Cemetery had a, an interesting walk into Highwood and then finished our day at the Delville Wood South African Memorial and it's a that's a place that I haven't been for many many years and I think what's um, very pleasing to see is the new work that's been done on the museum and visitor center behind the main memorial and the spirit of reconciliation that uh, now pervades South Africa is evident to see and I think there has been a great deal of work done to ensure that all South Africans uh, regardless of their skin colour are equally commemorated and uh, certainly uh, long overdue to see that and and very nice to see the exhibition itself and the the visitor centre is superb unfortunately we were running out of time but it's somewhere that I'm really looking forward to exploring again at a later date the next time i can get back down to the somme again which hopefully will be next summer now so where are we in today's journey through the footsteps of the fallen well we've come back to belgium for this episode and we're in a small corner of the battlefield that we visited before on this podcast we're going to take a slightly different view and a slightly different route around it and our journey today begins very close to the small hamlet of pilkem at what was the site of a former farm De Kleiner Zwanhof, or Little Swan Farm. Let's begin our journey now. The farm itself dates back to the First World War and when you look at the contemporary trench maps of the time and I will post one on the YouTube video that goes with this um, podcast you will see that the farm itself sits absolutely on the top of two British trenches one which dates from 1915 at the earliest point when the British took over this sector of the line from the French and the other from 1917 and this was an area of the front that saw almost constant fighting from 1915 right the way through 1916 and of course into the fighting at the beginning of the third battle of Ypres in 1917 and it really sort of came to the fore following the German gas attack of the 22nd of April 1915 when the Germans made vast advances across the countryside from Langmark towards the hamlet of Pilkem and they came really to a sort of standstill in the area around the Kleines Vanhoff farm and they began to dig in a new front line that ran along the slopes of Pilkem Ridge back towards the road to the village of Zonnebeke. And the French troops that were holding the line at this time were able to sort of cling precariously onto their positions in their trenches along the banks of the Ypres to Iser Canal. Just at the edge of the road that runs alongside the Kleines van Hof stands a small elm tree surrounded by a metal cage with what appears to be an information plaque on it. And this is a, a very interesting initiative by the Ypres tourist boards to um, help with the commemoration of the front line along this part of the Ypres salient and what have been planted across the fields of Flanders are 140 remembrance trees and they've been put at places where the front line crossed uh, either a public road or a public path and what they've done is quite interesting they have uh, the trees themselves have metal protectors around them and those were representing where the German line was are colored in red and those that representing the French or British line are colored in blue and the reason for this dates back to the colors that were used on original Allied trench maps where British lines were shown in blue and German lines were shown in red so it's a, a good sort of visual representation a good reminder as to exactly where you are and um, what's particularly interesting I think and uh, I think uh, very appropriate for this period of around Remembrance Day is that the Remembrance trees themselves are all elm trees and the elm tree was uh, a a site that was synonymous really with the plains of Flanders and they were very commonly found in the countryside around Ypres and they've been there for hundreds and hundreds of years Now, unfortunately the destructive power of war followed up by the prevalence of Dutch elm disease meant that the majority of the original elms no longer exist and uh, the planting of these new elm trees um, along the line of the trench uh, it's a nice sort of gesture of remembrance a nice way of bringing what's a a beautiful species of tree back to its position within the landscape itself and uh, I think it's a, a very nice thing to do and uh, the sort of very symbolic I think of the regeneration of the landscape after the war had finished. One of the things that's particularly challenging about this part of the battlefield and it's particularly difficult to imagine is the sheer scale of military activity that there was here particularly during 1917 where the whole of this area was a massive labyrinth of German trenches and strong points and redoubts and bunkers and it was a really sort of formidable task that the men uh, particularly of the Welsh division had on the 31st of July 1917 when the third battle of Ypres Uh, began to take these um, trenches and one of the most famous sort of landmarks in the trench landscape as it were in this area was a small salient in the German line which took the shape of a what the British assumed looked like a Roman nose and it became known as the point was called Caesar's nose and there is a small cemetery that we're going to visit in uh, a few moments time, but we're going to begin by turning right out of the Kleiner's Vanhof Farm and walking along the road by the banks of the Ypres to Iser Canal down to one of the smallest but uh, equally beautifully maintained cemeteries anywhere in the Ypres salient called Coln Valley Cemetery. One of the things that I find particularly interesting about the cemeteries in this part of the battlefield is it's possible to track the movements of regiments throughout this part of the Ypres salient. They're very small cemeteries that have almost a very uh, tight affinity to certain regiments and uh, certainly reflective of many of the regiments of the line that held this part of the Ypres salient from 1915 onwards right up to the beginning, the Third Battle of Ypres in 1915. 17. And Colne Valley itself uh, owes its name to uh, men of the 49th Division. This was the West Riding Division from up in Yorkshire. These were men of the Yorkshire Territorials who came out to fight, uh, some of whom, of course, enlisted as part of uh, Kitchener's first 100,000. But this Colne Valley, Skipton Road, and Huddersfield Road were all names that were given to British trenches that occupied this part of the line and the cemetery itself as I said is very small it only contains 47 first world war burials and of these 30 are men of the are officers and men of the west riding regiment itself the cemetery itself was begun in July 1915 and it remained in use until February 1916 and as i said it's a very interesting cemetery to walk around and say there are many sad stories of the men from yorkshire who gave up their lives to fight there but it's not entirely occupied by men of the west riding regiment when you look around there are other regimental badges as well there's a few graves of men from the King's Royal Rifle Corps there are uh, the cat badge of the rifle brigade on various headstones and it was on one of these headstones that I spotted the uh, interesting epitaph to a man by the name of Lance Corporal Reese Morgan now he served in the rifle brigade and his epitaph as uh, one would presume chosen either by his parents or maybe his wife said he saved others But he couldn't save himself. Now, sadly, I've done my best to try and uh, research what might have happened to him. And I can't find any reference to him in the war diary or anything like that. But it sounds uh, certainly sort of like a a heroic end that he met. And uh, it sounds like quite a man who obviously perhaps put his own life ahead of that of his friends. Sadly, we'll never know. But uh, it's always nice to read these personal inscriptions and uh, perhaps uh, bring the story of uh, maybe what would otherwise be uh, an anonymous individual to life. Also buried in Corn Valley Cemetery was a headstone that particularly caught my attention. Um, I, I have a real interest in the epitaphs that uh, families chose to put onto the headstones of their loved ones, and um, as a, a committed francophile all my life, um. I also have an interest in anything French related. And I was walking around the cemetery and I spotted a headstone that had an epitaph in French, which read, Person ne peut avoir un plus grand amour que de donner sa vie pour ses amis. Or literally in French, Greater love hath no man than he who lays down his life for his friends. And the man buried in this grave is a man by the name of Captain Percy Maynard Andrews and he was a member of a company of the fourth Duke of Wellingtons and he died here on the 15th of August 1915 at the age of 44 and he was a remarkably interesting man he led an incredibly interesting life and uh, he was the son of a vicar uh, came from uh, up in Yorkshire he was academically a very very gifted young man and he uh, gained a place at Oxford University, where he was to study French and German, but unfortunately, he had to abandon his studies uh, halfway through his first year, largely down to complications from ill health. Uh, he was a man who'd suffered greatly from um, ill health throughout his youth. He'd uh, had typhoid when he was a child, and it had uh, affected him. Uh, throughout the rest of his life and um, what he decided to do a rather extreme um, attempt to cure himself of the various maladies he suffered was to go out and seek mountain air and um, instead of perhaps heading where one might expect uh, of the French Alps or the Swiss Alps or somewhere like that he decided to travel overseas and became a cowboy in the Rocky Mountains and he uh, famously declared that it will either kill me or cure me and uh, miraculously the um, mountain air of the Rocky Mountains certainly seemed to cure him and he returned back to Oxford University to continue his studies and eventually he gained an MA in modern languages in 1899 and he was a, a remarkable man. He spoke 16 languages absolutely fluently, including German, apparently with a slight hint of a Bavarian accent. Uh, he studied at the Sorbonne University in Paris before becoming a teacher of modern languages at Lansing College down on the Sussex coast. And one of the things that he's best known for within the field of uh, teaching, particularly the teaching of modern languages, was his unique approach to, um, teaching foreign languages to young people. And uh, he was actually mentioned in the Times by the then Minister of Education as being probably the first truly great modern languages teacher. That the British education system has ever seen. Having spent some time teaching at Lansing he was destined for greater things and he was appointed as the head teacher of Hippaholm Grammar School up in Yorkshire. So he returned back to his roots. He was uh, serving as an officer in the Territorial Army at this time and at the outbreak of war he joined his regiment and was very rapidly promoted the rank of captain and it was as a captain in a company of the Duke of Wellington's the West Riding Regiment that he found himself in trenches near to the canal at Businger currently very close to where we're standing at the moment at coln Valley and there was an incident that took place on the 14th of August 1915 that was to cost this man his life. The German's in the middle of the afternoon suddenly unleashed a very heavy bombardment of high explosive shells on the British line and a British dugout received a direct hit from a German shell and Captain Andrews managed to extricate himself from the debris and began immediately to help dig the wounded out and he managed to dig one man out who was badly wounded but um, he wanted to take him to uh, an aid post the problem was that the trench was badly damaged and was blocked with dead and wounded men and the aid post was in the communication trenches behind where they were so Andrews really had only one choice and he picked the man up on his back climbed over the top of the parapet and went out into the open to head back towards the British communication trench behind them and of course exposing yourself on a battlefield like this was an incredibly dangerous thing to do and as he was carrying the man back towards the British communication trench a shot rang out and he fell dead with a bullet wound through his back of his neck. One of the men that was serving with him at the time reported afterwards that he as a captain had said that there was only one person who could carry this man across no man's land in exposed view of the German lines and that was him himself. It was far too dangerous a job for anyone other than him to do it and I think it's a real measure of the man and it's one of those interesting stories one hears about the First World War of a remarkable act of bravery that went largely unrecognized. Uh, he didn't receive any gallantry award or recognition for his act just an entirely selfless act of humanity that very sadly cost this brave man his life. The cemetery itself is a remarkable testament to the hard work um, performed by the Commonwealth war graves to ensure that all cemeteries are kept immaculately. It sits in the bottom of a valley of a stream. The stream itself is known as the Vanhoefbeek. And um, there was a major building project took place on the other side of the canal where a large industrial estate was um, built. And as part of this building the industrial estate was raised up above the level of where the cemetery stands and this caused some problems with the drainage which meant that the cemetery itself was repeatedly flooded. I will put a a picture of the flooding on the video for the podcast Um, and the Commonwealth war graves then true to their um, ethos of uh, looking after cemeteries took the remarkable decision instead of closing the cemetery down that they um, simply Redug the entire cemetery and raised it up above its current position so it now sits above the floodplain and the problems of flooding no longer occur. And it's, it's a remarkable testament to the organization that they were prepared to do something like that to ensure that the men who lie there can rest in peace. Just across this section of the battlefield from Colne Valley Cemetery sits another tiny cemetery, which is as all of the cemeteries in this area immaculately looked after by the Commonwealth War Growth Commission. It's a tiny cemetery called Dragoon Camp Cemetery. It was originally called the Villa Gretchen Cemetery, and it was begun by men of the 13th Battalion, the Royal Welsh Fusiliers. It's a very small cemetery that contains just 66 First World War burials, and of these, ten of them are unidentified. And when you walk around the cemetery, you will see that there are a number of men from the 15th Battalion of the Royal Welsh Fusiliers, all of whom share the date of death of the 28th of July 1917. And it's a very sad story, the fate of these men, of a trench raid that went horribly wrong. When the Welsh were in the trenches in this section of the line, the preparations for what was to become known as the Battle of Passchendaele or the Third Battle of Ypres were in full swing and there was a tremendous artillery barrage taking place almost night and day on the German front line and the front lines themselves were very close together in this particular sector of the battlefield and it was around the 27th of July that men of the Royal Welsh Fusiliers received an intelligence report from the Royal Flying Corps who had done surveillance over the German trenches in this sector and the report came back that the trenches were largely unoccupied and an order was given that men of the Royal Welsh Fusiliers were to advance across no man's land and take these German trenches that were unoccupied and then connect them up to the British front line. The pioneers would dig trenches because it would prove to be a useful springboard for the attack that was due to start on the 31st and so a party of men from the 15th Royal Welsh Fusiliers led by a man by the name of Major Evan Davies began their journey across no man's land and duly arrived at the German trench and as they walked into the trench it did indeed appear to be empty and no sooner had Davies and his party of men got into the trench then dozens of German soldiers appeared from dugouts where they'd been sheltering from the artillery bombardment and fierce Hand-to-hand fighting took place, and the it has to be said that the Welsh Fusiliers definitely came off second best in the fighting, and many of the men that were involved in this raid were killed, and the rest were taken prisoner and The war diary records that Major Davies was wounded and taken prisoner by the Germans, where he subsequently died of his wounds, and his body was later recovered as the ground moved forward, and he was interred in Dragoon Camp Cemetery. The land on which this part of the battlefield stands uh, is currently agricultural and as it has been literally for hundreds of years. And until before the First World War, the landscape in this particular area was um, a crisscross of hedges and small cops of trees and various wooded banks with uh, avenues of trees, of elm trees, as we've seen, that ran down it. And this was um, one of the things that the troops of both Sides took full advantage of. They dug their trenches along the natural reinforcements that the landscape provided because it provided shelter and it allowed them to really strengthen their lines of defence. And running along this part of the battlefield from By Dragoon Camp past Colm Valley was a broad bank of trees which ran up the slope towards the village of Piltkem. And the British used this to their advantage. They constructed an important communication trench which ran alongside these trees and they used this to link their first and second lines and the bank provided uh, a much-needed cover from the observing Germans who were located above them. And as you walk across the fields away from Colm up the slope you'll see on the horizon another small cemetery which we will visit momentarily but as you go across this meadow the meadow itself has remained largely unscathed and when you look on the trench maps at the time you'll see a pond marked and that pond is still in existence and part of the problem of this location was that it was very very wet and it made digging of trenches across this part of the landscape very difficult to so what the troops did is they used the hedgerows and they used the natural dips in the lands to build their trenches and because of this it uh, really meant that this part of no man's land uh, remained uh, largely untouched from the digging of trenches of course there was the problems of artillery fire but it certainly didn't suffer in the same way that other parts of no man's land did in this particular area and it's a very emotive place to stand as you come to the small pond that's here but it's this agricultural connection that made this part of the battlefield particularly unpleasant for some of the troops who took over this section of the line, uh, Welsh troops who took over this section of the line from the French in 1915. There's a remarkable aerial photograph that was taken of this part of the battlefield that shows the development of the trenches around April 1915 onwards. And when the British took over this part of the line, they encountered trenches that had been dug by the French and as I said we this was largely agricultural land and it had been farmed really up until the summer of 1914 so just before the war began and one of the things that the farmer had done obviously in preparation for his uh, work of autumn 1914 which of course due to the fighting never took uh, was able to occur was to pile huge piles of manure along the front Of the field which clearly was going to be used to be spread across the fields for fertiliser and that sort of thing. And of course what happened was that these enormous dung heaps of uh, cow and horse manure would sit in the fields. And the trenches began to be dug around them. And um, it was clearly quite quite an unpleasant place to be. One can only imagine these huge and, and there were a significant number of them. Very large piles of animal manure littering this part of the battlefield and one Welsh soldier remarked when they took over this particular sector of the line that the Germans seemed to take great pleasure in dropping shells immediately in between the various dung heaps which meant that not only were you peppered with bits of shrapnel but you were also covered from head to foot by flying bits of manure and indeed in a uh, typical British uh, Tommy's humour uh, sentry duty in this part of the line for the Welsh became regarded as, a, um, as more of a punishment than a duty and they christened it Sector SS which stood in their words for shit and shrapnel. As you look across the rolling fields through this particular area you can see by the pond that we were talking about a moment ago what for me is one of my favourite cemeteries anywhere on the Western Front. There's a very good book that was written by a man called Peter Chasseau in which it's called Rats Alley. And what it does is it talks at length about trench nomenclature and the way that trenches were given their names and uh, features on the battlefield were given names by the troops that held that particular section of the line. And both the British and the French liked to give their own and quite often ironic names to the places where they were fighting and one of the things that uh, we've talked about quite a lot in this is that the British uh, often had extreme difficulty in pronunciation of the Flemish names for uh, locations that they found themselves in so they would change um, the names of the locations to make it something more easy to remember and sometimes there was actually a particular reason for giving A place a particular name and that's certainly the case for this next cemetery that we're going to look at which is called Caesar's Nose and after the gas attack that took place in um, 1915 the French were driven back to the banks of the canal and what they tried desperately to do was to regain some of the ground that they lost and on the afternoon of the 16th of May 1915 they launched an attack and they managed to capture a section of the German front line on by the edge called the Kleiner Poselstrata, And on the eastern side of this, there was a communication trench, which ran at right angles towards the last section of the old front line that was still being held by the Germans. And after the fighting died down, this section of communication trench became part of the new German front line and what it did is it created a very sharp bend in the trenches as a result and on the trench maps at the time and in aerial reconnaissance photos this bend looked exactly like a hooked nose and uh, if you look back through literature uh, Cleopatra was famed for the sharpness of her nose but the imperial British were more inclined to see the Roman Features of her lover Julius Caesar. And so this triangular bulge in the German line became known as Caesar's Nose, and it remains called that to this day. And it was as a result of this that the small cemetery that now sits here, which was started by the Welsh in September 1917, was so christened Welsh Cemetery Caesar's Nose, and it largely contains the graves of Welsh soldiers. Possibly the most famous Welsh soldier to die in this part of the battlefield was the poet Humphrey Ellis Evans, or Hethwyn, as he was known. And if you'd like to hear about him, then please have a look through the back catalogue of the podcast for the Black Bard of Pilkem, And you can find out all about him and what happened to him and how he came to get his name of the Black Bard uh, in our podcast episode I think one of the truly remarkable things about this part of the battlefield is the huge number of literary connections there are around this area of the fighting. Obviously, we've mentioned uh, Humphrey Ellis Evans of Hethwyn, and as you head up the road from Businger towards the hamlet of Pilkem. It is impossible not to see on your left-hand side the Tricolour of Ireland. And it's obviously, um, one asks the question is why this is here. And it marks the spot of the death of one of the great Irish poets of the 20th century by the name of Francis Ledwidge. Ledwidge was a particularly interesting character. He came from a very poor family in County Slane in Ireland and um, albeit... Uh, despite the poverty, his uh, parents were very strong believers in the power of education, and they deemed it um, their mission in life to give their children the best possible education they could. And uh, the problems for the Ledbridge family came when Francis Ledbridge's father died when he was just, aged just eleven, and it meant that they went into a lifetime of hard physical work to simply make ends meet and ledwich had a number of jobs he worked as a uh, a copper miner he worked as a road builder uh, worked as a builder these were largely unskilled manual labouring jobs but required a huge amount of stamina and physical strength to be able to complete them properly uh, but the one thing that francis ledwich did show was a remarkable talent literature and he regularly wrote articles for the local press in Ireland and began submitting poetry to them from the age of 14 and it's really as a poet that he really made his name. He was known as the poet of the blackbirds and he wrote some fabulous poetry about his life in Ireland and he joined the army um, at the beginning of the First World War where he went into the Royal Inniskilling Fusiliers. This was an interesting idea for a man who was a, a very keen patriot and nationalist. And uh, he had tried uh, before he joined the military to found a branch of the Gaelic League in Slane. And uh, this uh, effort at sort of political activism was thwarted by members of the local council. But despite all this, Ledridge was encouraged to continue his struggle, but um he went on to become a founding member along with his brother Joseph of the Slain Branch of the Irish Volunteers. And this was a, a paramilitary organization that was created in response to the founding of the Ulster Volunteers who had sworn to resist home rule for Ireland even if it meant having a civil war. And the Irish Volunteers were set up to fight the Unionists if necessary and to ensure that home rule would pass. And when the Great War broke out in August 1914, and really on account of Ireland's involvement in the war, the Irish volunteers split themselves into two very distinct factions. There were the National Volunteers who supported the idea of joining Irish regiments in support of the Allied cause, and those who did not. And Francis was originally part of this latter party, who we were absolutely against war but uh, despite this having defended this position most vocally at a local council meeting he soon enlisted on the 24th of October 1914 uh, joining the 5th Battalion of the Royal Innerskilling Fusiliers which was part of the 10th Irish Division. Ledwich seems to have really rather enjoyed military life and he served um, in a number of different theatres he was a uh, active on uh, the Gallipoli Peninsula he was in part of the landing at Suvla in 1915 and he then served at the end of 1915 in the Salonika region in Serbia and um, he um, was a soldier who had some problems with discipline he was court-martialed and demoted for overstaying uh, leave whilst he was uh, away and being drunk in uniform and he uh, continued to sort of yo-yo backwards and forwards gaining and losing stripes over a period of two years and he uh, finally received his Lance Corporal stripes back in January 1917 when he was posted to the Western Front where he joined the 1st Battalion of the Royal Inniskilling Fusiliers and he did do quite a lot of uh, writing of poetry during his time out in the military and it's uh, rather sad for us as fans of his poetry that much of his poetry was destroyed um, during uh, atrociously bad weather in Salonica and um, it's uh, sad to think what we might have seen had the manuscripts survived and I think one of the things that's particularly interesting about Ledwidge's poetry is that he shows real pride in being a soldier and uh, i think he was a he managed to sort of view this as a continuation of his patriotism he believed very much that his duty was to be a servant of ireland and um there was uh, many references throughout his poetry to um wondering whether he would die a hero's death whether he would die a soldier's death or not One can only really assume I suppose that what this uh, meant to him was that he would die nobly in battle and of course it's uh, a curious anathema about the man himself of uh, obviously having been politically active in a party that opposed war and then going out and um, serving with his regiment throughout the war to wonder as I say whether he was going to die a hero in battle and he sadly met his end on the 31st of July 1917 and on as I said on the left-hand side of the road as you come out of Businger towards Pilkem is the Tricolor of Ireland and there stands a memorial on the spot which marks very close to if not the exact spot where Francis Ledwidge was killed by shell fire on the opening day of the Third Battle of Ypres. The Irish historian Alice Curtain explained what happened to ledwidge that afternoon and she said as follows ledwidge and his comrades had been toiling since the early morning at road making the army's first need was men their second guns their third roads these latter consisted mainly of heavy beach planks which were bolted together and could be rapidly laid down no advance could be supported in that sodden land without the sufficiency of these communications tracks six or seven feet wide Supplies were conveyed by pack mules over the wooden paths. Survivors concur in placing the roadwork done by B Company that day, one mile northeast of Hellfire Corner, so-called because it was very exposed to German shelling. There was a violent rainstorm in the afternoon, shrouding the region in a grey monochrome. Sullenly, the enemy's long-range guns continued to fling their shells far behind the lines. Roadwork could not be suspended, however as the tracks were in use as fast as they were laid down. Tea was issued to the men, and drenched to the skin, they stopped to swallow it. A shell exploded beside Ledwidge, and he was instantly killed. Ledwidge was originally buried at a crossroads just down the line that was called the Carford de Rose, but his body was later reinterred in the nearby cemetery of Artillery Wood, and there is a real poet's connection to this here because it's also where the Welsh poet Hethwin, of whom we were talking earlier, who was killed in action at the same day, he also lies buried. And it's rather poignant that these two giants of literature lie facing each other in the peaceful tranquillity of Artillery Wood Cemetery the literary connection in this part of the battlefield extends even further than this as well however it was here that the welsh soldier david jones served as part of the royal welsh fusiliers and it he was the writer of the epic first world war poem in parenthesis uh, i have to say that uh, i was put off uh, epic poetry having been made to study it at university but i have read in parenthesis and I think it is a, an absolutely remarkable piece of work and um, definitely one that deserves to belong to the greats of First World War literature and on that theme one of the things that I remember very much as a child when I was uh, used to spend many hours going through my father's collection of First World War books was picking books to read, and um, I think uh, perhaps with hindsight, look back, then maybe I was too young to fully appreciate some of them. But there is one book that I read from my father's book collection that really struck me more than any other. I've always been a big fan of the genre of personal narrative and personal history, and um, it was something that uh, we were talking about with Paul Reed in last week's podcast about the way. Uh, memories of uh, the soldiers came out when they were interviewed and um, I think there have been some remarkable m- remarkable works of autobiography that have been written by First World War soldiers but for me one of the most remarkable First World War biographies was written not by an Allied soldier but by a German and he served in this particular area of the battlefield. His name was Ernst Jünger and the book that he wrote which went on to become a classic of First World War literature, was called Storm of Steel. Jünger himself was the son of a German chemist, and he was born in the German town of Heidelberg. And when war broke out in uh, 1914, Jünger enlisted uh, into the military. He volunteered to join the 73rd Infantry Regiment, which was part of the Hanoverian 19th division and after he had uh, undergone his period of training he started his combat experience first of all in the Champagne region of France in December 1914 and it was whilst serving here that he was wounded for the first of uh, many times in April 1914 which saw him sent Back behind the lines for a period of convalescence. And he decided during this convalescence, when he was writing uh, the copious notes that he used to keep in various notebooks, that he was going to enlist back into the army as an aspiring officer, what was called a, a foreign junker. And uh, he was successful in this application on the 27th of November, 1915. He was pro- promoted to the rank of lieutenant and um, one of the things i think that is uh, remarkable about younger is he had this almost reckless suicidal bravery he became absolutely renowned um, amongst the platoons of the german army for his um, reputation that he gained throughout the combat missions that he went on and he was particularly innovative in his approaches to offensive patrolling and reconnaissance during the uh, fighting in the trenches and it was during this fighting on the Battle of the Somme in 1916 that Junger found himself uh, with his men occupying uh, the skeletal remains of the village of Guillemot and um, he was in command of a platoon that took up a position in the front line and they had um, been in this position itself had been shelled so heavily that there was literally nothing left except for rotting corpses and broken bricks everywhere and he wrote in his diary as the storm raged around us i walked up and down my sector the men had fixed bayonets they stood stony and motionless rifle in hand on the front edge of the dip gazing into the field now and then by the light of a flare, I saw steel helmet by steel helmet, blade by glinting blade. And I was overcome by a feeling of invulnerability. We might be crushed, but surely we could not be conquered. It's a very sort of powerful and, and romantic sort of uh, gesture or romantic opinion that uh, Junger wrote here. And uh, eventually they, uh, the platoon that he was with were actually relieved but uh, Junger was uh, wounded by shrapnel in the rest there near the village of Comble and he was hospitalized and his um, platoon in his absence were sent back to the same position on the eve of the fighting that took place around Guillemont and they were all obliterated but because of the shrapnel wound that he'd received Junger missed this and one must obviously assume that he probably would have died as well had he have been there. Um, He was subsequently wounded again in November 1916 and in January of the following year was awarded the Iron Cross First Class and um, in the spring of 1917 Junger's career took a, a sort of upward spiral where he was promoted to command the 7th Company of the Infantry Regiment and was stationed at the city of Combray, and having moved up to Langemark in July he found himself in this sector of lines around the small village of Businger and uh, that's really was sort of where the connection between him and this part of the battlefield took place he was in the German lines here and it's recorded in his diary he reports about the fighting that took place and particularly the artillery bombardments that um, took place uh, in this sector of the battlefield, and um, some of the recollections he has of the fighting here are particularly visceral in the uh, in in their realness and their descriptions of what the battlefield was like. By the end of the war, Junger had been wounded in total fourteen times, and he was finally awarded um, in the twenty second of September, nineteen. 19- 18, he was advised that he had been awarded the Pour La Merite, which was Germany's highest decoration, both military and civil. And it's something that over uh, many years I've tried to sort of work out what might be the equivalent decoration in in the, the British honours system. Um, I don't think it's the Victoria Cross, because obviously that is awarded for military, whereas the Pour La Merite could be awarded for both military and civil decorations Uh, but it was certainly the highest decoration of the german empire and it was awarded only 700 times during the war but it was almost exclusively awarded to very high ranking officers senior officers certainly not to men of the rank of junger as a a a mere infantry company commander and one of the things that junger did throughout the war was he kept a remarkably Detailed diary, and it was this diary that became the basis of his 1920 book, Storm of Steel. And if you have uh, never read it, I highly recommend that you get. Uh, a copy of it. You can find it on uh, Amazon and uh, things like that. It is an absolutely remarkable document. And, um, it's just, um, it is for me. It's always fascinating to be able to walk the battlefields and feel that connection with such a, an amazing piece of literature and know that the writer was there in this area where I'm standing and where I have so much connection with the battlefield. I don't know what it is about this small corner of Flanders that keeps dragging me back time and time again. But I think it is um, something to do with the memories I have perhaps of visiting the battlefield with my father, coming here with my father as a proud Welshman and visiting Welsh Cemetery at, at Caesar's Nose and hearing the stories of the men who fought here. My son has shown some interest in the First World War, and it's obviously something that um, I hope he develops. If he if he doesn't, then that's absolutely fine. But obviously, I would hope that he would share in this, and that him and I can go over to the battlefield together and make some memories for him. And as I'm sitting recording this on Remembrance Day on the 11th of November, um, my thoughts obviously turn to the whole concept of remembrance and what it means to me and it's been such a long period of time since i've been able to get over the battlefield so it's uh my trip last week was uh, actually a very emotional experience it was lovely to go back to the cemeteries and reconnect with these men who lie as the dead of the great war in the cemeteries that lie scattered the length of france and Belgium. And I think, um, I had a, uh, a very long conversation with a, a very good friend of mine when we stayed with them a few weeks ago that turned to, um, World War I and the cemeteries. And, um, my good friend Tim has a, a very unique viewpoint on, uh, remembrance and, uh, the idea of upkeeping cemeteries and um, I'm actually going to save this for um, uh, another podcast because uh, I'd actually like him to come on and and um, talk about his point of view because it's quite to my mind quite extreme and quite controversial his view but he expressed his argument very eloquently and very clearly um, but for me I never lose that sense of wonder when I go over to the battlefields and that freesaw of excitement that I get when I go over there and the visiting of the first cemetery and it's rather like I think Paul Reed described last week where he said that World War One is like a religion, it's the first thing you think about in the morning, it's the last thing you think about at night and for me that was one of the reasons why I started doing this podcast because it is more than a passion to me, it is a it is a way of life and um, it is something that uh, I am hugely... Uh, indebted to and I've made some um, great friends I've had some wonderful experiences along the way but it's a very strange idea really but the place in life where I'm most at peace with myself and most at peace with life is on the battlefields of World War One and particularly in visiting the cemeteries and I think every time you visit a war cemetery and you walk up and down the rows of headstones and you look at the names you are doing a little bit to keep the memory of those men alive and I think that is an incredibly important thing to do and I have this strange ritual that uh, I undertake on every trip that I go over to the battlefields. It's where I I take a small wooden cross and I place it on the grave of an unknown soldier and it's something that's hugely important to me because at that moment in time as I stand at that headstone and place that cross that man whilst unknown is not forgotten he is alive to me and his memory whoever he was will not be forgotten and the one thing that I always think of and always causes me to reflect at that moment in time is that whoever this man was and no matter how short his life might have been he managed to achieve something in his life that was far greater than anything I will ever achieve in mine. I hope you've enjoyed this latest episode of Footsteps of the Fallen with me, battlefield researcher, historian and writer Matt Dixon. And if you'd like to keep updated with what we are up to and what's happening, please don't forget to follow us on Twitter, where you can find us at uh, footsteps underscore pod. Or you can have a look on our Instagram feed, which is footsteps of the fallen blog, you'll find on Instagram. Uh, we've also got, obviously, our website, which you can find uh, everything to do with the podcast and pictures and uh, a blog and things like that. And you can find that at footstepsofthefallen.com. And if you have enjoyed what you are listening to and would like to help support the creative process, then please don't uh, hesitate to do so. If you go to our website, footstepsthefallen.com and look at the page marked support us, you can either head to buymeacoffee.com forward slash footsteps pod and make a donation there. Or you can go to patreon.com footsteps of the fallen and uh, any help or assistance that you may be able to provide will be gratefully received. So all it leaves me now to do is to bid you farewell and thank you very much for your company as we continued our journey walking in the footsteps of the fallen. It's been a pleasure to have your company. Thank you and goodbye.